Hello friends, it's Gustav here. I just want to give you a quick note before we get started today that this is not your typical episode of Can You Hear Me? We are going to tackle Cormac McCarthy's wonderful novel Blood Meridian and look at it from literary, historical, and psychological angles. And that means dealing with some very violent concepts and some despicable acts. And some spoilers are going to naturally happen along the way. It's not your normal jokes and jokes and jokes, although we do throw a few in there at times. But it is more of our most serious podcast that we've done so far, for whatever that's worth. And I just wanted to let you know before we get started. So please, if you've read the book, hop on for the ride. If you don't want to ruin it and plan on reading it someday, then you might want to steer clear till you have finished it. But I hope that you'll enjoy this slight deviation from our normal path. Thanks. Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. Whatever exists, he said, whatever in creation exists without my knowledge, exists without my consent. He looked about at the dark forest in which they were bivouacked. He nodded toward the specimens he'd collected. These anonymous creatures, he said, may seem little or nothing in the world, yet the smallest crumb can devour us. Any smallest thing beneath yon rock, out of men's knowing. Only nature can enslave man, and only when the existence of each last entity is routed out and made to stand naked before him will he be properly suzerain of the earth. Ty Webb. Heavy Longmire, Gustav Matteblanc. Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second? This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then, Plato, enlighten me. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's Can You Hear Me, the podcast with three guys talking about stuff. But this week, we have a plus one. This week, special guest. Our very first guest, the great, below the belt, Brad. I don't like that introduction. Give me more. Uh, fanfare. The great, fanfare. The we'll handsome, edit the fanfare in later. Okay. Yeah, I can put in uh, clapping. The more handsome... Uh, Main host of Below the Belt, Brad. I don't no like doubt. that either because he's much more handsome than me. Well, I meant of between you and Ty. Ryan. I was, I was a little surprised he showed up without Ryan. pants. Did the, you tell him the about assless that? Assless chaps is always nice. a, uh, it's a nice touch. Like those conchos you've got on there. I don't have AC nice in my car, so I, I, you know, I move as much clothing as possible. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Well, you know what? I, I don't have AC in the car that I drive to the airport for my spy missions. I. Fully support you and yep. side with you. In fact, when I had to make the secret drop yesterday oh, yeah, yeah. for the Queen of the North, giving her a, a T-shirt, a Can You Hear Me T-shirt, she picked the shittiest location on earth for it. There's a lot of traffic right there, isn't there? Oh, fuck yeah. yeah there's that, a lot of traffic. It seems like a really public spot for a drop. So the drop that she placed, she chose was the former Michelle's Ranch, which was a whorehouse oh, yes. in Frisco back yeah, sure. when our youth. Yes, oh, back. really? Oh, yeah. Frisco used to be a tiny little town, huh. and it had at least three, maybe more, whorehouses along 121. 
Okay. So you had the 121 Hot Tub Club, which was right off 121, which is just a trailer. And that was closer as you got to... To Preston. To Preston? Okay. Because it was one... Or 289. Right kind of by Louisville, too. That was Wranglers. Okay. You're right. The adult arcade. Yep. Now, I know all this... The adult arcade is just... You're just watching porn and jerking off, right? Well, that's I think nice. that's the glory hole type thing. And don't say just. I mean, it's a pretty good time. <laughs> yeah, I, a big deal. I, I, I'm know? serious. Sounds I went into one of those things when I was in high school, and I thought it was like video games, like, right. like pornographic <laughs> video games. And I get in there, and it's a button you press to do it. And I'm like, I, I honestly didn't understand that, that people actually went there and jerked and, off. And you didn't know why the dick, was, the, the large black penis was sticking through the hole on no, the side? But, like, pornographic video stick. games is not a bad idea, though. Do you remember Leisure Suit Larry back oh, yeah. way back oh, in the sure. day? Now, so kids, before there was real porn on your computer, there was Leisure Suit Larry, which was an 8-bit, bare minimum. <laughs> I don't even know if you if you even saw anything more than like a, a, a square boob with a cherry colored nipple on it but it was glorious it was glorious and it was a little scroller you played you solved little puzzles and you could type fuck and he would it would have a little sensor bar that would go up and down as he was on top of a whore or something (laughs) but at the very end of the game you got to see like half a nipple of some girl in a hot tub and that just blew my mind yeah it was great it was the best thing ever and this is like 1985 you know 86 and sierra Made it, and they made other non-porn games. Not that Larry was porn, but for the time it was. And now you sons of bitches just wake up in the morning, pick up your phone, and you go to Tumblr to the Can You Hear Me Pod page. But as right. you're going, you stumble upon lots of uh, clothed female nude male porn as much as you want. Yeah. God, it's so easy. Now. Yeah, I mean, you had to work for it when we were kids. I Absolutely. Mean, I mean, the porn fairy had to show up and yeah. throw a. Uh, old hustler out of the back of a truck and yep. you find it in a bar ditch. Yeah. Before we go any further, we need to introduce ourselves just so everybody knows. Oh, yes. So we've, we have the wonderful, the highly esteemed, the learned Brad with us. Professor Brad. He's raised our IQ. Do we know that he's a professor? I mean, nah, I have that's not something seen any credentials. we, I did not see a diploma right. at, tucked into his assless chap belt. I am Gustav Monteblanc. I am Ty Webb. And I am Heavy Longmire. And uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm Real Gustav. Uh, at Longmire Heavy. I am at Muzzy74. You've got to fucking change that. I, I mean, know. He's, he's I know. He's I know. With it. M-Z-Z-Y-7-4. Because yous? They suck. But I, yeah, I know. I need to change it. It's bad. And you'll lose all your followers. I mean, yeah. you, oh, you, don't, you don't lose any followers. You just find one a name that's not there. You don't lose anything. Really? Yep. 100%. You just go in, find a new thing that's taken. You can't do it, but it's not taken. You just switch. Man, I need to do that. You need man. to work on that. Maybe we I could just add the U and see if that's taken. That would be great. Could you, you imagine how that would change your life? But then everybody would be looking for the no U version. Well, we'll switch. Because for the most part, I think if people do find our podcast, I'm not sure if they go back and listen to our fullback catalog, which, as we've talked about, our audio quality was pretty shitty because the yeah. sound man sucks, but... You know, I'm thinking about replacing. Well, it. I, I, I got to do that. And I didn't know you could too. change that without starting all over. And also, they'll figure it out. They just if they're searching for the original thing, they'll see things that you've been tagged on, 
or that you responded to, and then they can just click on your new one. So I, I need to do that. Maybe he is a professor. Maybe. That sounds very professorish. You can email very. us at canyouhearmepod at gmail.com. You can go to our website where all of our old episodes are and some other extra fun content, canyouhearmepod.com. We're on Instagram. We're on Tumblr. I haven't put anything on the MySpace, but in case somebody goes back <laughs> in a time machine, they'll find us there. Cool. Uh, Pinterest. Is Ryan on MySpace? I don't think so. And I think he's on Facebook, but he never gets on there. I think we we could do like a whole episode about Ryan because Ryan doesn't even know any of us exist. That's you right. know? Oh, he, well, he was very impressive. We recorded today, and I, I told him I was going to see you, and he knows you, and he's really excited about you for some reason, maybe because of the songs you sent. But the uh, horrible songs. Those are the worst things I've ever done. I mean, I, I liked them. I listened I liked to them, them and I cringed. That's how bad they were. I laughed. Well, yeah, but you're laughing. You're laughing at me, not with me. If we can get our recording material and you know we can get like a six, you know, a six uh, mixer, we'd love to have you both up here because I think Ryan. I, I'm fascinated by Ryan because he seems like such a nice guy that loves to just beat the shit out of people. Yeah, he's he's a good dude. And I, that's I a dichotomy. It, but if he was here, I'd be calling him a bunch of names and everything. Right. But but yeah, he's a, he's an impressive dude. He's accomplished a lot, and he's a he's a really nice guy. And it's interesting that KJ, you know, from the Partial Recall podcast, he and Ryan went to school together, and they both have they didn't hang out together, but they just have positive things right. to say about one another. That's cool. Yeah, that is I'm, cool. I'm afraid the people that went to school with us might not always have something. We probably positive. don't want to bring them on the show. Yeah. We're not so. delving into that back catalog. Just to reset for everybody, because I know for the most part, the people that listen to us listen to you guys, but you have a podcast called Below the Belt on the Blowout Podcast Network. It's fantastic. It is I superb. It. Thanks, guys. I know a lot. it makes a lot of people's top like spot. I know I see that all the time on people talking about how it's their favorite. It's and my probably, top spot. It's probably mine, too. Yeah. Um, it's predominantly a mixed martial arts-based podcast, but you bring... The, you bring the heat with all the history talk. Yep. And Ryan does too, because I realize Ryan has a, a background in history. I think that's what his bachelor's is in. And so both of you can talk it, but the fucking research you do just oh. blows me out. I'm going to, you know, uh, reveal things here. It's, it's honestly, you, you know the places to look. It, it's really easy. You know, Google doesn't do the stuff for you, but you Wikipedia. Guys, <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to shit on Wikipedia. Wikipedia has its place. And nowadays they're actually putting sources down at the bottom so you can just go to where the person got it from. But um, you go to Portal to Texas History. They're mm-hmm. digitizing all these documents now. You go to uh, newspapers.com. They're digitizing newspapers. Elefine.com. That's free newspaper archives. So you can look up all this shit. I mean, it takes time, but right. it's, it's not like it's some sort of secret. It just, it just takes a while and, and you have to know where to look. So. Right. I remember one day... We were having we were having some type of email conversation or something. You gave me all these links, like in your spare time, and I'm like, "Fuck, I don't have time for this. That'd be great." How but much time a week do you spend researching? It depends, but um, like, I, I'd like to keep it to just two hours a week, but it ends up being all all the morning Friday, so like six six hours or something, seven hours. Damn, that's about what I put into this. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So we do abs. We have done more prep for you coming tonight than we have done the entire twenty something episodes that we have. So we read a book. Well, you read a book like for the eighteenth time. Yeah. Ty, Ty and I read a book, and yeah. I took notes and did a little bit of background oh, research. See, I mean, this is we get we've got overachiever Gustav over there. Like I didn't know I was supposed to be taking notes and doing research and. 
Well, I, I did a little research, but I don't have any notes. Okay, well, I've got notes. See, I, see, I'm worried because I, I didn't reread the thing. I've read it a couple times, probably two times, and, uh, you know, I've read the books around it and I recommend it. But uh, on the way here, I'm sitting there listening to the album you guys suggested, and I'm hearing character names, and there's some characters that you know, I forgot about. So well, I'm hoping to, it's a badass album, isn't it? It's pretty good. I really like yeah. the kid song, the kid yeah. the second one. So I'm not going to go – I'm not going to approach it from a – uh, character thing because I think as far as character driven, like that talk too though. Uh, yeah. As far as character driven, there's really only a couple of characters that matter. In yeah, it. I want to do a solid hour on the ending. Okay, well let's <laughs> let's back up. I, so, I've, I've got some theories. This oh. this may not be your typical can you hear me podcast. Let's keep talking without telling them what we're talking about. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm trying to, right. to get. So we are talking about maybe the greatest novel according to some counts ever to come out of the American. Uh, literature, and that is Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Love it. And you may be familiar with Cormac McCarthy because he also wrote No Country for Old Men, which is a Coen brother movie that we all love. He wrote The Road, which is a movie that I will not, uh, a movie that I won't see. I never have read the book, but. I haven't seen the movie either. You know, I think I've read the book. I can't remember. I don't, it wasn't very good, but I, I'm almost positive I, I read didn't. it. That's one of those the movie was I felt was better than the book. But I, I didn't like the movie either. I've seen the movie. I can't remember the movie either. Yeah, like I, I mean, described plot points, but I Right. And even for Cormac McCarthy, the book was very dark. Which that's saying a hell of a lot for true. Cormac yeah. McCarthy. He wrote all the pretty horses. Yeah, all the pretty horses. Wrote, and I really like his uh his stuff set in Appalachia. Sutry, I love that one. The Orchid Keeper. Um God, what's another one from over there? Um, I can see the smoke coming out of your ears <laughs> yeah. as you try yeah. to process all this. I can't, I can't this. remember anymore. So, McCarthy is a bit of a recluse. He does not give out many interviews, so there's not a lot of source material of him talking about this book. Yeah. I've never, the only interview I've ever seen with him was I think Oprah got him to come on after, after they made a movie out of All the Pretty Horses. Right. And so when was that? Like, Late 90s. Probably something like that. Yeah, because yeah. it was Matt Damon. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I found that on YouTube and I watched it a couple of years ago. And yeah, he's, he's one of those dudes. He, he doesn't like talking. He's just, and he didn't seem shy. I mean, it didn't seem like he was yeah. embarrassed by the whole thing. He just very, you know, you always hear about those types that are r- very reclusive, wants to keep things private, that kind of thing. That's how he came across. I'm, I'm happy he's like that because it'd be kind of shitty if he got on there. He's hopping on the couch like Tom <laughs> yeah. Cruise or something. Yeah. Right, right. Well, it's like, you know, think about the guy that wrote, uh, shit, talk about me giving you shit about not being able to remember, uh, J.D. Salinger. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. Salinger, people wouldn't be all ape shit crazy about catching their rise. Salinger was out there hawking everything and giving other things. Exactly. And I've read some of his other books, and they're okay. They're interesting. Right. But I thought that's all he wrote. Isn't that- no, he wrote Franny and Zoe, uh, and he has a book called 12 Stories, which okay. is a compendium, I think, of 12 short stories, which I found fascinating at the time. I haven't read it as an adult, but it didn't. the stories didn't have a beginning and they didn't have an end. Just my kind of book. Like, <laughs> I, I could write that shit. And it would just be like, it would just pick up a couple talking about something in the bedroom and then it would just that part would be over and at the time i thought this is really cool but now i don't i haven't gone back and looked at it sounds like a robert altman film yeah kind of so blood meridian or as it's the alternate title is or the evening redness in the west is set in post mexican war mexico and uh 
or we, which we, is 1844, 1845. 1846 to 48 is the U.S. Mexico War. U.S. Mexico. And so we're after that, so we're probably 50, 52. Okay. Like that. Yeah. Okay. Glad he's here. He knows dates. I don't know. No yeah. shit. He knows dates. He's got a fact Maybe we can get us. some Alamo talk going yeah, on. Yeah, let's here do another hour on Alamo. What, what's your fact, uh, thoughts about the pilgrims? <laughs> yeah, guys. For those who don't know, I, I hate pilgrim talk. I hate Alamo talk. So Blood Meridian is a tale of uh, a boy, a child, or you know, it's what he's called in the book. The kid. The kid. A teenager that falls in with this gang of, and I've seen them called filibusters. Seen them called, you know, scalp hunters, whatever you want to call them, that go to Mexico to take on bounties to go, quote unquote, protect the locals from the Apaches. Right. And Comanches. And the Comanches. And in doing so, since these aren't probably the guys that you would recruit to do that, because the only way that you've proven that you've done anything is to scalp somebody, these aren't exactly your nice guys. Right. 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 And he falls in with a group called uh, the Glanton Gang. And that is actually historically, supposedly a real group. Yeah. And if I want to, if you, I'll go to my notes if y'all want to, because I know I'm looking at the table here and I don't see that you two have prepared jack shit. Well, no, no. I mean, I, I don't have any notes. Cause but. I want to go back, cause, um, uh, to me, we could sit there and go through the whole story and I don't know if we're going to actually, yeah, if that does anything. Maybe we just cut to the chase and say pretty much what the story's about. Yeah, and and starting off, you know, like Gustav said, it starts off with the kid, and he leaves home in Tennessee. Uh, says his dad was a school teacher and a drunkard, and was not nice to him. Uh, his mother died during childbirth, and there's a line in the book I remember that stuck out to me. It's his dad refers to him as like the the demon that killed the mom or something hmm. like that, you know, the, the wretched child that killed the mom. And uh, so the dad has no love for the kid. And uh, so the kid leaves Tennessee, makes it to St. Louis a year later, it says in the book. And from that point, he the only way he can make money is fighting. He just he gets in fights. You know, I've kind of seen stuff with this uh in different movies in that time, you know, fighting was a big thing, especially in your along your navigable waters where there were right. people from all different backgrounds, and uh, and they'd fight. So he, he uh, I think St. Louis is the pl- no, it's not. It was in anyway. He hops a steamboat in St. Louis, goes down to New Orleans where he, he fights down there. And these are not boxing matches. These are you know knife fights, just kind of just brawls, scrapping. Yeah. Well, he gets shot, it says, with a small caliber revolver. He gets shot two times. When he gets nursed back to health, he scoots out in the middle of the night because he knows he owes the lady money and hops on a, a ship that takes him to Nacogdoches, or takes him to Galveston. It doesn't even say Galveston. It just says the Texas coast. From there, he went north, ended up in Nacogdoches, and that's where he first runs into, he doesn't know his name yet, that's where he first runs into the judge. I think we should just give a quick overview and then talk about things that are interesting. For okay. Yeah, I think so. Because I think okay. if we go through it bit, yeah. bit by bit, yeah, we're going to spend like 35 minutes talking about the if you've read it, the then you'll appreciate it. And if not, maybe it'll make you want to read it. Right. Okay. So, Everyone should so read it. So forget everything I just no, said. No, no. Everything you said, you know, it frames it. But I agree that we kind of have to give a, a big picture. So this is not a big novel. 
by no. any way, shape, or form. It is one of the harder novels that I have ever read, however. It packs in a lot of stuff in a very small amount very of Very descriptive writing style. It's incredibly descriptive, and the piece that always sticks out in my mind, you know, and uh, Royal Tenenbaums we talked about a week or two ago, the opening scene where they introduce Eli Cash, the Owen Wilson mm-hmm. character, he's reading from his old <laughs> Custer novel. Right. And it's all about the flip craw of the dusty saddle crack. You know, mm-hmm. that is what you're up against yeah. in this. Now, as far from a literary standpoint, it is not a strong plot. There's hardly any plot. It's character driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it, the environment is, it is yeah. the environment yeah. is a huge player. It is a linear plot. The narrative is third person with no introspect as to what anybody's thinking. So it's a very limited omniscience. It has hardly any character development at all. Everybody yeah. is what you get the moment you get them. Yep. I don't know the kid. Yeah, I mean, the kid I, has a certain amount, but even that is is ambiguous in there's itself. There's a lot of shadowy character development, though. I think is like there? inherent. Character See, I think it's it's I so think it depends limited. on how you interpret. It. I guess so. I, the kid absolutely goes from the kid to the man in the end. But as far as how we see how he thinks and how we see how he acts, he's pretty much consistent throughout. You know, and there is a uh, a lecture. Actually, it's two parts on YouTube that you can find by I think it's Professor. Hungerford or something like that from Yale, and it's pretty interesting. So you're cheating. I went and watched this this gal. <laughs> She's cheating. Yeah, I mean, and, and I drew some own conclusions from right. our thoughts are our own, <laughs> but you know, he but, drew he drew his conclusions from what she said. No, no, because I got some crazy stuff of okay. my own. But she talks a lot about how McCarthy had, and it's hard to find McCarthy quotes. Like we talked about, he's a recluse, mm-hmm. and he had some quotes she used about how. A novel's not worth writing unless it's about life and death. Hmm. So he looks at all these people. He does a good job in every damn novel well, he writes. Death is there. Yeah. He looks at all these people that are writing, like you know James Joyce and Proust, and you know all these people that have written all these highly regarded top tier things as they're bullshit because mm-hmm. they're not writing about life and death, and they're writing all this flowery, poofy language. And even though his Descriptions are so dense and so packed. Whose idea was it? Okay, now we're back. Sorry for the delay. Uh, we had a little uh, pizza emergency, and, and a so a little bit of grappling. Slightly, uh, only the slightest bit of homoerotic grappling. Got some pizza grease on us, and then we decided to. Start grappling. Mm, so I'd find the pepperoni. Does Ryan is is that a bit when Ryan gets mad or does he? I really, think he generally gets mad. Yeah. <laughs> I think he generally gets mad. And and you know I, I know what he's saying, but because to him th- there's nothing, there's no oh, sexual yeah, element yeah. whatsoever. But outside appearances, it does kind of look like it. But the real reason I press it is is because it makes him mad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and maybe I should save it for an email. But I would like to hear a um, episode about catfighting porn. I don't even know. I swear, you know, and I've seen plenty of porn. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Oh, wait, no. I think, all right, I, I don't think I've clicked on it, but there's rings. Like, there's yeah. Ring, yeah, okay. I That does not appeal to me at all. Like, no, I don't want to see anybody hurt. Like, it's, I don't, not, right. it's not a sexual, uh, It's but it's fascinating. I mean, it's like girls punching each other in the boob and stuff like that. It's really weird. I wonder if they're actually technically sound, like if they're taking people that are really trained or if it's just they find models or whatever. I don't know. Maybe Ryan that. could do some research while he's not. 
jerking off to Overwatch, Overwatch porn. porn. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Maybe use his non high five hand to work that mouse a little. <laughs> I don't think he's high fiving anybody. Maybe he's doing a high five on the computer screen. Don't we don't know. know what's going on in the farm. Some VR really? high five. You're, you're yeah. not with him all the time. We so. have to talk about that this week. So. All right. I can't wait. So <laughs> let's reset everything. So we're talking about Blood Meridian. And because we have a learned man of history, Brad, could you set the stage for what we're looking at in the early 1850s on the Mexican-Texas border? Well, uh, you had just described going through Nacogdoches and all that area. And, and one of the things that stuck out to me is he's talking about passing through all these cotton fields and, you know, the slave picking cotton, things like that. And say to Texas, you know, we don't really think about slavery and everything like that, but before the Civil War, about 25% of Texas is slaves, and all there in East Texas, and it, it really is just cotton fields everywhere. And that just scene that he set was absolutely perfect, because that, that that's what you would have seen is cotton fields everywhere. And we kind of, it's convenient for us in Texas, like Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, they don't really have anything else but Texas. We can focus on the West and San Antonio and all that stuff. But um, I thought that was a great scene. And then he gets down there to... Uh, San Antonio, I thought that was pretty accurate. And then the whole thing about the filibusters, that happened all the time. Uh, since the Louisiana Purchase, as a matter of fact, they would Americans would just get a bunch of dudes together and either go right across the border or actually just try to take land from first Spain and Mexico. And uh, it's actually some of the stuff I deal with in the book is uh, hmm. is these Americans just saying, let's get a bunch of guns and let's go over there and, and take shit. And so I thought that was pretty accurate. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that, in doing some further reading about this, McCarthy does two things. So he does a lot of allusion to previous literature, and he does allusion historically to one specific book. Mm-hmm. And I think you carried that book yeah. in and hid it under the table today. This is... In a really weird move. Kind of uh, like the squirrel move. I, I'm very impressed by this, but my, my dad actually got it for me for my birthday. It's like a, a $80 book or whatever. But um, uh, yeah, he, uh, mm. Samuel Chamberlain, he was the guy who, from the north, came down to Texas, fought in the U.S.-Mexico War, later joined the Glanton Gang, although that was a very small part of his thing. Uh, Corn McCarthy expanded it, but uh, Corn McCarthy... Based on these memoirs and based on a lot of other research, that's uh, that's kind of how he, he set the stage for this thing. And Chamberlain also did watercolors. Yes, and, and if you look in the book, some great pictures. And my understanding of this book, so it's his memoir, and so I'm, you know, any memoir of that time, especially, it's probably like I'm a badass type stuff. I haven't read much of it. I've seen some excerpts, and his, I guess he got back. He survived all this, and he also he had this copy, you know. His first, and then he made two more copies of it by hand. Hmm. Wow. And then eventually, I think one of them's in, down in Texas, I think at Austin, and one is somewhere back east. Well, one's here. I think, well, I think this may be a reproduction. <laughs> I'm just judging by the dust cover. I don't think this is original. I could be wrong. Brad could be uh, pulling the rabbit out of his hat. But it's one of those things where even if, Fifty percent of it's fake or, or embellished. There's still fifty percent that's probably just dead on. Yeah. Right? And out of this, several McCarthy takes several characters by name, including the Glanton gang and Glanton himself and Judge Holden. Oh, see, I, I didn't realize that, that he's a very different person in this. Yes, yeah. he's not the same yeah. person, but okay. by the name, name there is a Judge Holden. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I, it's it's almost hard to talk about this book. 
I I have never heard of this this by Samuel Chamberlain. Now who he, he ended up becoming a Union general and uh, he just served in the war and just okay. told about his experience in this U.S. Mexico thing and really because I the other book that you had recommended to me a month or so back, a War of a Thousand Deserts, yeah. that kind of goes it's it's a textbook. Yep, and it goes through a lot of kind of I mean, the basics of what uh, um, Blood Meridian's about. And I'm about halfway through it, and there, it was been throwing out. It threw out a couple of names the other night when I was reading. I was like, I'm going to look this dude up and just see. And it called him, a, you know, a scalp hunter. He was an American scalp oh, yeah. hunter down in Mexico. I can't remember the guy's name, but it, he was a big old Scottish guy. And he's got eyes that are just yeah. I mean, he was he stood like six foot seven, and I mean, he was a monster of a man. And he started out and he was in the U.S. military. Uh, I. He had been in the U.S.-Mexican War, and then after that was over, he went to Santa Fe as a trader. And so he traded with the Comanches and the Apaches and all that kind of stuff. And like I said, he was Scottish. Well, then, well, he's trading guns. He's getting guns from the French down in New Orleans or East Texas, and they're smuggling them in there. They're getting them to him. He's trading them to the Apaches and the Comanches. Who are then in turn using those guns to storm down into Mexico to steal their horses and mainly horses, horses and cattle, and just wreak havoc. And then Mexico pays him to kill the Apaches. Yes, and then Mexico comes in and is like, look, we, we need some help. That's when they start setting up the bounty system. So it served him both ways. He was selling guns to the Indians. Making getting, it right and left. Getting money from them. Plus he is taking money from the Mexicans for scalp hunting them. The reason I recommended that book is because I read that thing. It blew my mind. What the book's about is it's just about these Indian raids. And they, it's hard to even describe them as raids. They were invasions like you'd have the Comanches, Kiowas, Apaches all joined together. And they'd raid sometimes like 100 miles away from Mexico City. And they would just destroy cities, like actual town cities in their mm. path, killing hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, we have this impressive United States of – uh you know, white man pushing Indians off. And, boy, you talk about what happened to the Cherokees, Choctaws, and, and some of the Indians in the Northwest Territory. Uh, that was effed up. But, like, Comanches and Apaches, they did some really awful stuff. Right. We, don't, we, we seem to forget about that. But that book just made clear, especially people in Mexico, that, I mean, if you saw that dust coming over the horizon with 2,000 Indian warriors, everything you knew was right. about to cease to exist. Exactly. And, and McCarthy – has a couple of times where the gang, as they're moving west and keep mm -hmm. on pushing and pushing, they'll hit a small presidio, usually a smaller one mm -hmm. in the book, which has just been devastated. Yeah. There's a couple of different times where nothing's left alive except dogs and maybe a pig or something. Yeah. And I was telling Ty, I guess the last time we recorded, he had already finished the book. And, you know, there's been speculation, or not the speculation, for, you know, for 10 years. There's been a screenplay floating around Hollywood yeah. of Blood Meridian. But everybody's scared to death to try to do it because it's just, I mean, there's no way you could do it in a movie. I mean, it would have to be like a Netflix 10-part yeah. series. Right. Or, or HBO like or something like Or an HBO, like that. something like that. Because you just, I mean, you could not do it in a movie. You could not do it justice in a movie. And James Franco's gotten his hands on the uh, screenplay and thank goodness he realizes he can't do it because he's screwed up a couple of really good novels trying to make movies out of them. But then why was, do you have this James Franco 
uh, poster frame back over there in the hallway that I'm thinking about. He doesn't have a shirt on, does he? No, and you can stick your head through it and get your picture taken. Yeah. That was professionally made. Yeah. Why is the the hole for the head so low? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Anyway, me and Ty were talking about that, and I said, you know, there's certain image, you know, because McCarthy's all about imagery, and there's in the whole. The main scene that sets up in my mind that I would love to see put on film, and it would be like the Battle of the Bastards, I think, almost, on uh, Game of Thrones. And you just kind of mentioned it. When they're moving west, and the first time they come across a Comanche raiding party yeah. coming back out of Mexico, and it's you know several hundred Comanche and Kiowa warriors with about a thousand head of cattle, and they've decimated this presidio. And he talks with clarity and just such depiction on how they're dressed. And he talks about, you know, some of the warriors. One of the warriors wearing a uh, a men's waistcoat backwards. Yeah. And one of them wearing a uh, wedding veil and how it's streaming. You know, and they're you know un- hanging off the horses, shooting arrows, and they end up decimating the crew that he's in. It's just like. Just, I mean, that's stuff nightmares. And it talked about how they'd gotten into, you know, they'd found some makeup, women's yeah. makeup. And they had their faces all painted like, you know, clowns almost. And just this nightmarish. It would wreak terror in you just, if you yeah, saw that. This just nightmarish scene that descends down on them. And just as fast as they're there, they're gone. And everybody's dead except for the kid. Right. You know. Well, and, you know, that's, you get into, I know that. Texas still does Texas history, and I I know that other states don't have that level of history, and they don't teach it. Yeah. So, but you know the the what the Rangers did fighting the Comanches after the revolution, you know that's that's a real deal. Those were real battles. Oh yeah. And I don't think people outside of Texas even know. People hear the Indian Wars and they just think of what happened up on the High Plains. Right. The South Plains was yeah wide West, open. West Texas was. Uh, would be a horrible, horrible place to live. And it's interesting. There's another. Well, let me okay. Like the, jump the, in his there. depiction of the Comanches and stuff. Like I think it's just that land is just so savage and harsh that it turns people into that. You know, mm-hmm. like he's, they're describing the Comanches like that, but you can describe Glanton's gang like that. And it's oh, just, absolutely, it's just without, for sure. And you made it mention earlier. It's in, the field they're playing in on. this book, and I think in real life because the people out there, it's hard. Yeah. Or not as much now, but. Pre-air conditioning, it was a hard land. The the environment drives so much of this book, whether it's at nighttime and just everything that's painted there, the landscape, the temperature, the weather, everything. The, 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 the environment is the main character of the book you could even make an argument yeah. about because everything that happens to everybody in some way or form, they're affected by the environment. Yeah. Can I read a quote from that? This is one of my favorite things. This is the first quote we're ever going to have. This is a quote, in, quote from it. what? From what? He says the Comanches were ripping off limbs, heads, gutting the strange white torsos, uh, and holding up the handfuls of viscera, genitals. Some of the savages so slabbed with gore they might have rolled in it like dogs. Mm. And some who fell upon the dying and sodomized them with loud cries to their fellows. Yeah. And yeah. so the thing that this guy, I brought a different book here, but he argues that you know, we shouldn't think of the Comanches exclusively like that, but if you're somebody on the frontier, you see something like that, 
one time, another time, which it did happen, that's all you're going to think of. Yeah. You're not going to yeah. think of, you know, Comanche families. Right. You're not thinking, thinking of, like oh, that. let's give these guys a chance. Maybe these are the good guys. Yeah. No. Right. It's that, All you can remember is coming on the scene of what yeah. used to be your neighbor's kid or something. Right. You know? Well, and I think, too, it's important to, I mean, kind of what goes into that, the Comanches, from what I understand, you're the history ace here, ace. The uh, <laughs> what do you? That. He nodded. What is his <laughs> I don't know what that meant. That, the, he gave us up, a little Mr. Until, Roper nod there. Up until probably the early 1800s, the Comanches were getting the shit kicked out of them up in the Central Plains. The, they kinda, making that argument in that book, yeah, by the Pawnee or the uh, not the Kiowas, the the Pawnee, Pawnees, yeah, and even the Blackfoot would come down some. And pretty much pushed them down into what we currently think about in, in, in the early, in the early 1700s. Kind of pushed them down into where we think about Comanche territory now. Well then, once they got a hold of the horse, that's when they started expanding their territory. And they pushed out all the Apaches and the Navajos into New Mexico and Arizona, except for, there was one band of Apaches that they still got along good with. I can't remember which one it was. Greg, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was Greg, Greg Apache, but uh, the but one then, that had the theater. But then right, they Tyler. teamed up with the, the them and the Kiowas and the Wichitas were occasionally Apaches too. Yeah, and that one band of Apaches were friendly with each other. And once they became such skilled warriors on horseback, you know that really expanded how far they could go. And that's when they realized all these horses that they that their life depends on. Mexico's got the best ones. Well, so they didn't gonna, realize they weren't even a thing before the horse. They, yeah, they broke they were, off and, and uh, invented themselves. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, the the horse made the Comanche. And it wasn't necessarily that Mexico had the best horses. It's just that's where the easiest ones to get. So you, you can go keep trying to raid the Americans that are moving in. They've got six shooters. They're badasses. Mm-hmm. As you go over there, you're going to get killed a lot. Or instead, you can go down to Mexico, who the – Politicians in Mexico are in there fighting each other. They're fighting civil wars down in central Mexico. They're not worried about the northern frontier. I right. Mentioned that quote. No Indians don't unmake presidents. Yeah. Fucking the, the opposite party unmakes the president. So you need soldiers. You're having them aimed at the opposition political party. So instead of attacking the Americans over here with guns, go down in Mexico to destroy it, take all the stuff, then sell those horses to the Americans for some guns mm-hmm. and things like that. And so Mexico just fucking turned into a wasteland yeah. in the uh, early 1800s, mid 1800s. Yeah. That, uh, it just boggles my mind, and, and again on the with Blood Meridian, it set, does set just such a horrific picture of the environment. Just it's that a nightmare, like I, I dry, hot, just yeah. You know, it's about as the, violent as the people. Yeah, I think it's more so. You know, I, you read a lot of things. If people are talking about this book online, and they're like, "Oh, the violence is horrible." Now, the violence is bad, and there's awful things that happen, but I think that. The violence is, I mean, the violence is real. It's real, That's and I, history. I think a lot of the people that actually read this book and come away with how ultra violent it is, live in an insulated world where they don't see this violence and they don't watch, you know, Kill Bill Volume One or something right. like that. So, to them, oh my gosh, somebody got shot every page or thereabouts. Yeah. That's horrible, but it's not. I think it really was realistic. Like the quote. They're people disemboweling. They're sodomizing things. I have a theory about sodomization at the end. We got to get to the end at some point. Anyway, um, but it's it's without a doubt violent. But 
the the environment's violent yeah. to it. Yeah. Well, the reason I, I recommended War of a Thousand Deserts, that book came out in 2008 by a guy named Brian DeLay. I read that the next, I guess a couple months afterwards, I read Blood Meridian, looked at this. This came out in 81 or something, right. like mm-hmm. that. something like that. And I'm like, holy shit. How did he get this so right when nobody's really written on this topic? Right. Yeah. And I had a chance to meet Brian DeLay, and I said, "What do you think about Blood of Meridian?" And he said, "I read it before doing the research, did the research, came back and read it." And he says, uh, "It's just he's it's amazing." You know, he says, uh, "You know, obviously there's some things that aren't perfect there, but it's just how he sets the tone and just the situation down there on the northern border of uh, Mexico. You know, I've spent a little bit of time, not not in that part of the world, but I've spent some time around the California desert. And so it really, it it seemed very real. It's like, this is what I've I've been to in northern Mexico and and around uh, like Joshua Tree and stuff like that, where it's just, there's nothing, you know, there's no, there's nothing, no shade, there's nothing, but there might come a cloud and you might not ever get to you. We have that experience, you know, and, and we understand the West because it's part of our inherent narrative of us growing up here in Texas. I watched several videos, and I had to give up on each of them because I couldn't take it. There are uh, like a British conference that they have about this book, and they come and they all talk about it and mm-hmm. stuff. And I was like, what the hell do these guys know about the West or the heat or, mm-hmm. you know, and all these things? And then I, I got me to think, well, that must be like somebody from – you know, Russia thinks about if we're talking about Tolstoy or, you know, right. it's like, it, you it may truly get it. You, you might, don't get it. Yeah. From a literary sense, they might get it. But from a the true what it's like, well, hey, they don't. I, I think you guys could be wrong a little bit just because I think a lot of people from Texas, their view of the West is John Wayne and there's heroes and the cavalry's going right. to arrive. And Quit talking about Travis like this. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always, there's a light almost at the end of the tunnel or something and, and, uh, no, that's not real life. No, and I, yeah, I I would agree exactly with what you're saying. If up until we got the anti-hero westerns that kind of changed people's perspectives, once we started seeing where there's not always a good guy, even in the movie, that the good guy, quote unquote, good guy, the protagonist is really not a good guy to begin with, and we see that a lot of times they get shot too and they die and things like that. Up until probably like 1968. I, I would agree a hundred percent that that's it's all Hopalong Cassidy and Roy and Rogers Lone Ranger and the Lone Ranger and it's all going to be great and then we kind of get this ultra you know realism and then we get ultra realism eventually and maybe we're the exception maybe that we see it that way and maybe still most people Travis I would will, think so I, I mean I would think the predominant opinion or narrative is still stuck in some of that for sure that sees it as you know, much Romantic. more white hat, black hat, you know, kind of thing, and doesn't. I mean, while that's it's become much more popular, like you said, or it's it's out there more. Right. I mean, it, it was up against a big, you know, amount of evidence the other way to start right. with. I mean, and I think today's generation, since they aren't watching that stuff that we watched every Saturday on Channel Thirty Nine at that after twelve, no rifleman, no rifleman, no Big Valley, none of that crap. They're not going to have that white hat, black hat view of it, they're going to watch something by Quentin Tarantino or whatever, and it's going to be fuzzier than what our black and white world of good and comic book, too. Yeah, I just know know, But but how much is comic book of a Comanche warrior smeared with guts sodomizing some guy screaming for his buddy, hey, Bob, look at me. I mean, that's comic book to that level, too. But, man, but that was real. I know it happened, but the point is, is they're going to have a different view that our generation may be the last generation that 
has that hold over the Lone Ranger, has yeah. that hold over of. Well, and, and to me, and, and this is one that a lot of people have seen. And when we talk about the terrain, to me, this sets the picture good. Thank no country for old men. Right. Because it's set in the same area of Texas. And they do a real good job in that movie. Of course, it's Coen Brothers. They do a good job. They do a good job painting the picture of the terrain. I don't remember coming away from that, getting a picture, getting a sense of the heat. Yeah, I don't right. think it was in a hot time of year. But yeah, it definitely, because it was antelope hunting, so yeah. it wouldn't have been in the summertime. But, again, that's one of those good guy gets killed at the end. Right. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you're the guy you're rooting for. In, and a lot of people look at that and they're like, well, that's, you know, that's classic Coen Brothers. How, that's classic McCarthy. And that's kind of the way it is, you know. The well, I, and, and that be my counter argument would be the American West is different than this West, this Northern Mexico. Oh, West. absolutely. Like, like the American West, there wasn't very many bank robberies. There wasn't a whole lot of uh, like we play it up as if it was violent, and then you know, in the way the American West, at least Western, I'm used to, good guy would come in after the violence, everything be safe, but it was still violent. American West was not the northern Mexico. Like, no, 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 Yeah, and, and this this level of what's going on there is, and it's, it reminds me a little bit of what kind of goes on with the narco wars now, where yeah. you have a populace that is powerless. You know, they got these peasants either then or now, and you have these forces that, like you said, just come in and do what they please, and they don't care. There is no collateral damage to them because they just don't care. And when the Glanton gang turns from fighting the Indians just to gather a scout from anybody with dark hair, it kind of turns to that same level. And as the story goes, just kind of move our narrative here, uh, they start off the heroes, they ride into town with all these Comanche scalps or Apache scalps, I can't remember who the first uh, interactions are, and they are met by the governor and everything's great, and after, what, two days, they're ready to run them out. Right. Because they're more Los Indios. You yeah. Know, you know, better than the Indians. Are. Yeah. And they, uh, that pattern just escalates further and further in the story. Glanton is the, um, to me, the, the whole story is about the inherent nature of violence and war is natural to man. Because, and the environment versus man. There's obviously evil in the story, but most of it is just a violence just for violence sake. These okay. guys are making war, well, and they don't care who they're making war against. Right. And I think it comes back to, I mean, you had to fight to survive. You had to fight to survive the environment. You had to fight to survive that whole situation down there in northern Mexico and, you know, the along the river down there. Whether, you know, I mean, they were, and it builds on each other. You know, like these Americans... You know, like you're saying, start out killing Indians, then it turns to, well, Mexicans have the same color hair as Indi- right. Indians, let's scalp them too. And so it's just, uh, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before with, you know, snipers and stuff. You kill enough people. Right. It's mechanical at that point. Killing's yeah. killing. Doesn't I mean, really matter who you're killing at that point. I think I, I mean, I sort of, at least the one of the main themes that I took out of it was, it was sort of the story, again, of one person's battle against their own nature yeah which is the kid, the kid. Yeah. and how the judge you know is sort of the embodiment of evil if you wanted to say right. whether or not i mean i guess we could get into whether well, or not we think he's tack- a person or he's supernatural or whatever so, but he's definitely you know instigating this battle that's going on within the kid himself so we've alluded to the judge a couple of times you mm-hmm. mentioned that he first runs into him in texas 
And the judge at that time says, I've seen you before. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's not what it exactly says, but he, uh, the judge is in the book, hairless. Hairless. Says he's a towering. Hulk bald, of a man, Hulk bald, of a man, bald. Can you compare no, him to a gerbil or something? No, he said oh, he had an infant at one point. Oh, yeah, yeah, he said he had no eyebrows, no eyelashes. Came out of nowhere. Right. And, and he's a polyglot. He has knows multiple languages. Right. He is a, a man of ex- extreme knowledge of geology, of uh, botany, of taxonomy of animals, archaeology. Mm-hmm. And he's really omniscient in the book. Yes. Now... A lot of different, so Judge Holden is mentioned in the, uh, Chamberlain's, Chamberlain's My Confession. He, and he's mentioned by name and he's mentioned as being a big man and hairless. Now, from what I could pick up slightly was that hairless back then might just have meant in this, his context, beardless. Okay. And not this alopecia giant but he was a big man he does mention his hairless in the in the uh, but they, memoir but in the book too don't they mention when they talk about him being completely naked not a hair on him yes he's totally yeah. absent of yeah. any body hair and he's a giant man and he is and maybe i missed it because it is a complex novel to read it's despite its brevity whenever they're in a battle he is usually not involved yeah. in the battle and Whereas Glanton is always at the forefront. Now there are times where he fights, like at the at the ferry, he fights his way out of that, and he's obviously after the the kid in the end. But I think that's the imagery of the judge being in it and not in it at yes. the same time. Yes, I mean that carries throughout. So the book. there are a lot of people that look at the judge because of his omniscience and his general evilness, because he does some very evil things that even the people that he's with Toadvine pulls a gun on him and threatens to kill him and the judge is just like go ahead and shoot me or put that pistol away a lot of people tie him to satan right in the book mm-hmm. there's one guy on the on youtube that claims he's a jinn from the muslim tradition of a like a genie type thing oh, okay of the spirit that's not necessarily immortal but certainly long-lived right and I had this idea that he's like a Nephilim, a fallen angel, where mm-hmm. he's... Like Michael. Like Michael. He's, he's super powerful. He's not of this world. He has that one quote where he talks about being, uh, nothing could be on earth without his permission of creation. Mm-hmm. Right. So he has this, you know, supernatural element to him. Now, I think all that's nice and fun to talk about. I think he's just a, a plot device for the story. I don't know that he's really supernatural in McCarthy's eyes. See, I think he is, or that's the way I read it. Because just because, and and part of it was all the stuff that we talked about already. Yes. And and the end too. But then there's also times where even, because they don't have a lot of bringing in things that characters discussed off scene into the book. So when it's discussed, it's like it's either known or not known. And some of the stuff that he says to the kid, there's no way he could have known about it. Unless he was omniscient. And Unless he had some kind of supernatural power. And he's always pointing. He's like opening up the window into the kid's soul and saying right. things right. that he knows about him. That's right. And, and his goal, I think, is to have the kid embrace his true nature, which is evil, or embrace evil, which he, which the right. judge embodies. And I think that's part. I mean, I think that's his thread throughout the whole story is that's his goal, you know, for anyone. But the main character focus of it for him in the book is the kid. Right. So the judge 
is uh, he's orchestrating is forefront in a lot of the literary allusions that McCarthy uses to build this. And right. McCarthy had a quote somewhere about the the sadness or the 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 frailty of the novel is that it has to be built on other novels. I can't remember the exact quote, mm-hmm. but he's basically saying all novels are just stacked on top of the right. novels that come before it. There's a direct parallel between Melville's Moby Dick. Yep. So you have, but instead of Melville with a narrator and having all of this character development and everything, we don't have that. We just have a framework. And the two of the biggest pieces of it, and this is from that Yale lecture. I'm not coming up with this myself because I haven't read Moby Dick in a long ass time. But how long has it been since you called yourself that? Uh, but let's see, last weekend. Anyway. While playing the dick joke in there, while playing Led Zeppelin's Moby Dick, yes, <laughs> there's the Mennonite preacher that the kid mm-hmm. runs into early right. on in the novel, yeah, and that has a parallel to the a prophet that warns Starbuck and Ishmael, I think, from going on to okay with Ahab. There's a direct, I mean, it's almost like, you know, it's mirrored, right. it's mirrored there, and then you have when uh, Toadvine could have killed the judge and ended, in theory, some of this. Uh, Starbuck has the, uh, there's a pause moment where he could go in and shoot Ahab in his bed and he doesn't. So there's those two pieces. To the supernatural, Milton's Paradise Lost, right. you have the heroic Satan, yep. which is the judge. But, and I didn't realize until I read this, cause I'll be honest, Paradise Lost is a bitch to read. And I had to go back and try to reread it to the part that I saw documented for it. The gunpowder scene, which we've talked about before, that is, Without quite the pissing and the judge laughing, Satan teaches the the fallen angels to make gunpowder right. for the fight in the mm. chapter six of Paradise Lost, and that's it's it's even to the point where Satan comes out, much like the judge does, and says, "Hey, what the judge says," and then all hell breaks loose when everybody starts shooting. So it's the same same framework there. Very interesting. And we've got the whole uh, kid. Pedophilia thread running through. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, these kids keep going missing. Yeah. Then it, I mean, I think it, you know, I don't know when we want to get to the end, but I definitely think that plays in at the end that that's what's going on. All right. I I forgot the pedophilia stuff. I remember the Apache. There's two specific pieces. There's the one where they come upon, um, the mule skinners or the prospectors or whatever at the kind of burned out presidio. Mm -hmm. And there's a boy there. And the next morning, the boy's dead. Right. And everybody's just kind of like, and that's, that's alluded to, I mean, that's, yeah, it's inferred. Right. But, uh, the baby that he's bouncing on his knee, oh, the man. toddler, and everybody's having fun and laughing yeah. at it. And the next morning, baby's Lizard. dead and scalped yeah. and probably much worse. So yeah, I agree. The yeah. pedophilia is a, seems to be a common thread. Well, there. I mean, I think if that's, if that's one of the ways that the judge knows that the kid will embrace his evil nature is to give in to his pedophilia. And I think that's the reason that, so like, you know, when he goes into the town and he gets with the whore Mm -hmm. who is uh, a dwarf or whatever. Right. And it says that the dwarf was sent to him. Yes. So in my mind, that's the judge sending the dwarf to him to re, you know, rekindle his love for these little people, but he can't get it up with the dwarf. Why not? Because it's not the real thing. It's not a child. It's an adult that's, you know, smaller. I'm so. No, I, I, yeah, I hadn't put all that together, but now that you mention it, the pieces kind of just fall. And then what he does right after that. Yes. I mean, which I think is the ending makes total sense with why, you know, 
him not being able to get it up with the dwarf and leaving there and then going to the outhouse. So does, does anything throughout, because I haven't picked I up, didn't on pick up on this. I I remember the creepiness with this, but for whatever you yeah. pick up on that. Is, is there any allusion to the kid being a pedophile, or is it just something that the judge knows? Well, I mean, I think it's never explicitly stated, but I think it's one of the things that when you get to the end, you can look back and okay. the thread makes sense. Okay. Like that Gosh, now I'm that they're not you know, remembering these the ending, awkward like situations you. with the kids or the kids going missing and then being dead and that kind of thing matches up with, at least if you take my interpretation of the ending, it matches right. up with it. If you don't, then, you know, it might not. But I mean, I think. I read that as a thread going through it and that that being something that that when the kid embraces the judge at the end, he's embracing that nature of himself and turning to evil. And I think that the kid is in the outhouse and he rapes and kills the little girl that's, you know, she's hiding. I think she was hiding in that outhouse. I think he went in there. He found her. He raped her and killed her. And then he's standing outside the outhouse when those guys come back. Cause that's, I've seen it argued that, well, is it the judge that tell those guys, you know, you know, you don't need, you better not go in there. Right. You don't want to see what's in there. Or is it the kid or who is it? Well, I think one, and maybe I'm just reaching on this, but one giveaway for me that it's not the judge is that he uses bad grammar. And the oh, judge never uses bad bit. grammar. True. And when they, when they ask it, you know, when he tells, I don't remember exactly how he says it, but when he says those guys, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be looking in there or whatever. It's improper grammar. Hmm. And I mean, I think that's, I think that's what happened at the end. And that the judge is overjoyed because now, and that's another thing that the kid, I think he's slowly wanting to embrace this part of himself. And that's another threat is that the kid, you know, that there's another Mm -hmm. kid theme running through, but he's going from being the kid to the man, you know, that likes kids, that kind of thing. But he, is wrestling with embracing the judge this whole time. Because the is, judge has been courting them whole, the whole yeah, time. And he could have killed the judge, and the judge could have killed him. Well, so this is a this is a dance, and I think that the kid, and the kid, it's no accident that the kid goes to that town at the end either. He but, tells those people he knows this all, he knows all the evil that's going on there. He knows that the judge is going to be there. And it's years later. Yeah. Years later. A good 10, 12 years. Yeah. And the judge hasn't changed appearances. Not a bit. And that adds to the supernatural effect. Here's my... I need to reread. I had always interpreted it as the judge killed the kid. Right. In the end. I've also... Sodomized I've seen, him I've seen and that. I've him. seen that he sodomized him and didn't kill him because sodomization would be like the worst thing in that culture. Like, you know, you might as well have killed him. But that I think the judge better. is so happy because the kid that he is... He's dancing at the end because his goal has been accomplished, which is to have the kid embrace evil. He's brought him into the fold. Himself, which he does at the end, yeah. I think. Maybe. That's 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 fascinating. I, that, I mean, if he just wanted to kill him, he could have killed him, I mean, half a dozen times before. Yeah, yeah. he could have killed him in the jail. He didn't want to kill yeah. him. He wanted to turn him. Yeah, no, that's. I'm going to have to go back and reread the last Woody yeah, section. Let, let me, I, I'm trying to think. Like, again, it's been a while since I read it, but the thing I remember is the, the bear that had been taught to dance, and I'd always assumed that that was the kid that was playing nice, and then they shot the bear because he wasn't acting in his true nature. I think I'm looking at this uh, at such a base level. I think you guys are getting three layers deeper than me. And so well, I and this le- kid was the bear. But without, see, that, see, I think that, in, and I was taking it as this being another example of the judge orchestrating everything, yeah. because without that bear getting shot, the girl doesn't run away. Right, that's true. 
And um, he never would have got to find the girl if she wouldn't have ran away and hid. She would have stayed there. You know, and she had to hide somewhere close to there because it hadn't been that long a time. And I think she was hiding in that outhouse out there. So it, there's no symbolism to the bear or that was just, I, I don't know. This, this book, despite, you know, we've talked about how, uh, descriptive and how powerful the wording is, but it's very succinct. It's clipped. You know, everything is, it's, it has an economy, even though it uses a lot of words to describe things. It's not full of flowery symbolism, I guess, for lack of a better term. And at so, times you don't know what's symbolic and what's not. And right. you can make five different novels. Right. Out of and, it. and I think everybody, as we've just shown, we've got four people here that have all read it. And some of you have read it multiple times. All four of us have a slightly different take right. on it. And you know what? That may be to the credit to exactly. what a powerful novel this to is. To me, that shows the... How good it is. That everybody takes a little bit of something. Now, you've blown me away because I'm going to have to go back and reread that because I think you're on to something there. You mean with the pedophilia with thing? With the pedophilia the... thing. I, there was no, I, I picked up on the pedophilia of the judge or of at least the crew. It's right. always implied. And I think I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Well, because there's that one scene where, where uh, I can't remember if it's the kid or who goes in there and opens up the door and it's the judge... And the idiot yes. and someone else that are in there naked. Or right. And, I mean, the idiot is basically a child. Yeah, I mean, they're right. not a consensual person. And so at first, when I was first reading, I was thinking, you know, this is part of it. It's the judge is a pedophile and that kind of thing. But at the end, I took it more as that it's, no, it's him orchestrating right. these things. Like and he's always wanting to, you know, get those. Well, yeah, I can, I can see that because, you know, at the Presidio or the or the burned out Presidio where the child is dead the next day. Right. It's the judge isn't really tied to that explicitly, so it could have been anybody in the party. Now the the kid that the uh, I want to say the kid the baby that he's playing with or the toddler that yeah. one's a little more you know dead on, but yeah and and the man child because he takes the man child totally under his wing the idiot right. and that's his and he even carries and keeps keeps him going through the desert as he's. Once- See, I think that the reason he was in it, all of this is, you know, this could all be confirmatory bias for sure. Right. I've sort of got an idea of what I think is going on at the end. But looking back, I saw it as this is just sort of an ultimate way, too, of him always having a tempter mm-hmm. for the kid. Like, he's not going to let this, you know, he's going to carry along with him a constant reminder to the kid of what the kid really wants. Right. And so that is the way that he's being used. To tempt the kid. Wow. See, I just assumed it was just innocent. Not, nobody saved your, your innocence is getting killed or something like that. I, I did not even think. Well, I, I mean, there's that. There's that. Because now one of the things, it, and it alludes to almost the very start. Where are my notes? And this is, there is a lot of but biblical. I, do, I want to talk about that one, the idiot well, scene and, at some point. And you talk, and the, the thing that you brought up before in reading that passage you, you did about the, you know, the grotesque nature yeah. of the violence that was going on there, that that was one of the things I told these guys when I, cause this is the first time I'd read it, that one of the scenes that struck out to me the most was the, you know, the two infants getting bashed against the rock. Oh, absolutely. And it's like, r- right there, it's gonna give you a little window into, this is how violent a situation that we're talking about. Yeah. And the fact that he doesn't gloss over that at all, just like he doesn't throughout the book. Remind you know, me, where the, was that again? Who, that's yeah. at the, uh, uh, that's at the battle where they, where it's not really a battle, it's a massacre where they come down to the camp on the lake. Yeah. Sure. And it's the gang that does. The it. gang does it. It's not the judge, because again, is this in Yuma or whatever? Is this? It might have been Yuma. Oh, okay, but it's they come down off the the. They've still got the Delawares with them. They're not dead yet. It's 
middle of the book, I guess. Yeah, you say? early middle. Uh, oh, yeah, Utah yeah, area, or uh, what I assume was Utah or New Mexico Mountain. Somewhere, or and so they come down to this lake, and there's the, the, the village there, and it's old people and women and kids, and they come down, and they just tear the holy hell out of it. And somebody smashes the two babies head to head against the rocks or whatever. Yeah, I think they've got them, or at By least the way I remember foot. it, pictures that, yeah, that they've got both of them, you know, on horseback and got both of them in each hand and, you know, smash right. them both their heads into rocks. Yeah, it's a very, uh, it, it would probably be, I think, one of the harder scenes to stomach. Yeah. If they ever do film this. Yeah, for sure. Now, we got to go into the epilogue or something. I know, hold on a second. From the, from the uh, start, McCarthy has already cursed the kid. Yes. So there's a lot of biblical, that's the other kind of mm-hmm. thing that's put in here. And it's not, it's not like a heavy biblical allegory, but there's a few things that are real pertinent. So he calls him, he comes, the, the, he calls that the kid comes from hewers of wood and drawers of water. Yeah. Now that's from Joshua 9:23, where the Gibeonites have lied to the Israelites and said, "Hey, we're not these tribes; we're ambassadors." And then when he finds out, he's like, "Well, I promised I wouldn't kill you, but you're screwed." Right. So that's the curse that's put on the kid from the very beginning. In addition to the being the murderer of his mother, so yeah. by his father's standards, so even from the start, he's a murderer. That's right. just what all he's ever going to be. Born a murderer. Did that? I knew that had some kind of significance, hewer of woods and drawers of water, but I did not know what that came from. Yeah, that's from, uh, so that's, that's after Moses is dead and Joshua's leading the Israelites into the promised land and they're supposed to kill. Do you already know that or did you look that I up? I did, no, I did know that. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're supposed to have killed everybody. Right. All yeah, the right. tribes they meet, the Gibeonites come out and they say, hey, we're ambassadors from this foreign land. You know, we're not like these guys. And so, the Israelites give them food and say, okay, well, you know, you're under our protectorate. And then when they actually go out killing a bunch of other tribes, they find out, oh, these live here too. And they're like, well, we promised you in front of the Lord, so right. we're not going to kill you, but you're fucked, basically. <laughs> and, you know, there's a couple other things like that where there's definite biblical symbolism, but it's not a heavily, it's, I, if anything, I see that some of the, um, the syntax Matches up with not the King James version, which is a little flowery. But like, if you ever read like Greek and uh, old Hebrew uh, translations where it's not the King James version, it's very clipped. It's very this, you know. Matter of fact, how much time have you spent in the Septuagint this week? Ah, uh, this week I had got to not it. a lot. Okay, not a lot. Yeah. But anyway, so maybe I think, the Talmud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got his prayer shawl on. But there's no doubt that it's focused on it. But I don't see. McCarthy as a Christian author. No. Like, no. Somebody like, he's no C.S. Lewis, he's no Tolkien or anything like that, where it's all framed, everything they right. write is framed within it. I think he just uses that clip style, that Old Testament style. Of yeah. Bap, 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 bap. And it may tell you everything about it, but it's not giving you the backstory. Yeah. It's, here's a, and here's a vengeful God, you know, and that's kind of, I don't know if God really comes into this novel at all because it's really not there. I mean, the judge is anti-religion. Every time he runs into anybody, whether it's the ex-priest mm-hmm. yeah. or anybody else, he's always shooting them down one way or the other. So, no, I mean, I think it's a lot of like what Brad was saying earlier about the innocence lost issue thing that it's, you know, it's the violent nature of 
human nature in the context that it's in. Right. You know, that those these two are a marriage, this environment and these people. Hmm. Uh, and that, that that's what's getting played out. It's it's human nature that's getting played yes. out. You know, it's not like, well, these people are they're the bad guys and these are the good guys right. kind of thing. It's just it's the battlefield that they're on and it's the context that they're in. But that each person that's in it also is also dealing with their own nature, right. their own inner nature. I read one commentary where it talked about, uh, you know, because the kid is one of the few people that's ever, quote unquote, merciful in anything. Like when somebody right. is on the verge, they're wounded and they're telling him, you go ahead and leave me. The kid doesn't leave him or mm-hmm. the kid pulls out the arrow or pushes it through or whatever. But in the discussion I was reading, they pointed out that he's only merciful to his game. So right. it's a limited mercy. It's a tribal right. mercy versus he doesn't extend that same courtesy to anybody else. It's just his group. So, you know, and you he definitely into, doesn't go to any lengths to keep his gang from doing something that he thought was inappropriate to someone else no, outside of the group. No, so no. there's not any of that moral stance in that yeah. way. Either. Overall, he doesn't, he's the least of the evil. But he never really shows to have a moral, much of a no. moral stance on anything. No. At all. No, but the, and there, there, yeah. there's that one passage in there where they talk about how, I can't remember how they word it, but it's basically describing the unity of the gang. Like that when you're in the gang, you're working as one right. kind of thing. And I think that he paints a nice picture of that. Right. But it's, this is one thing here. Yeah. This is not a bunch of individuals acting just individually. Right. This is a, this is a mob of one mind. And it turns thing. into tribe versus tribe. Right. So you have these tribes of Indians and then you have this tribe of filibusters that are out there just doing the same thing. It's just who they're doing it for and eventually they're doing it for themselves and then they're the same at that point. But we've gone too long without Brad talking. I know. Sorry. Oh, no, Brad. no, I, we're, I mean, we're, I, we're wearing is, Brad out. No, no, yeah. no. These are things that I, I Brad I mean, was I'm asleep for the last fifteen minutes. And, and like but I love the book and I, I guess I love it more for the environment. You're looking at some symbolism. Like I'm gonna have to read it a third time I'm thinking now. I'm sorry. No, no, I I, I mean it is exhausting. Yes, it, it, it's an exhausting <laughs> it read. Is. Like it's uh halfway through first time I had to take a, a three week break. Yeah, yeah. I did too. And then, um, you know, when you're getting towards the end, your mind is just insane. And, and that scene where the judge is leading the idiot on the leash through right. the desert with the parasol made of bones. Right. Like, I'm saying, how the fuck did I get here? Like, it, it just right. this, this scene or this feeling ran over my body like this is surreal. And I've never read anything like this. And I don't know if I believe it. I don't know. I don't know what's real anymore. Right. And, and that's, that's an interesting point because I had to take the same I, – it took me a long time to read this novel. And I took a break and, you know, we started talking to you about wanting to talk about it. And, like, i got to finish this. i got to finish this. And you get to that point, and it's a grind. When you're going through all that desert environment yeah. and all the mountains, it's, it's exhausting mentally to go through that. And then you hit that – the Battle of the Ferry from then on – I think I read it all in one setting because I didn't want to stop because I had to see at that point what is going. Again, if you outline this plot, and I haven't yet, but if you went and outlined it and bullet pointed it and did head of the class work here, it's short. Sure. You know, it's bap, 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 bap. And there's really not that much there to it except his curt yet incredibly descriptive language. Yeah. And these characters, which I still, you know, the judge is a constant. He's the same as he was. You see a little more of his evil. Right. But he's still the same. But he doesn't change. He doesn't his change. His nature doesn't change. And just Glanton, like his appearance you know, doesn't change. Glanton doesn't change. 
uh, you know, all these minor characters, Toadvine and uh, Van Diemen Lander and all these. I mean, I think that's the, I think that's an argument for the idea of the kid turning evil and accepting evil, this nature inside of him that's, that's evil is to make the point that he didn't change either. Oh, but he's battled against it the whole time. And he's but ultimately, finally, ultimately, he hasn't changed either. His nature has been his nature, and he finally embraces so it. So do you think that the interaction with the bone pickers is just kind of the uh, the antecedent to that final? Or do you think he's – it's just like like you said, they t- warn him of the, the evil that's coming, and he's like, I already know. I, th- I think that he's going there for a reason. But, yeah, it provides – an opportunity for some of that to play out for the reader too. Now, a couple of people that I read about, they made a big deal how, you know, he was still illiterate, yet he has that Bible that he picks up in the mining camp. And people, some people consider him a preacher, although he serves no, I can't remember what the quote is. You know, and McCarthy didn't put anything in this book just because he needed filler material. It's not long enough <laughs> right. he did that. That tiny little, I mean, that's just a paragraph there, but it has to mean something. And is it a, maybe it was a talisman against that evil that he was fighting? Maybe, I don't know. But I, that's such a, it's almost at the end. Cause, yeah. You know, they we compress the man into such a tiny amount of the book. It's yeah. what, maybe 20, 30 pages of that? Yeah, for sure. And he didn't put anything in there at all. By chance, so I don't know. Maybe that's to that point. Maybe to him it was a, as he wasn't reading it, so maybe it was just a, a physical talisman against what the inevitable switch to evil was, or or acceptance if, along your lines. I mean, I think it. I mean, I think it makes sense in that narrative, but I mean, again, this is all like interpretation. Too. Right. What was y'all's take on what you thought happened at the end? Um, or even the judge, do you think the judge is a person? Do you think he's supernatural? Do you think he's, you know, Satan? What? So if, if I recall correctly, I remember the the last scene was the judge standing on top of a cabinet dancing and directing everybody. that Saying so he's never going to die. Yeah, because the, the guys go to the outhouse and, you know, look in. I think really interesting that of all the violent things that McCarthy describes, he doesn't describe what you see it's in an that excellent outhouse. Point. Yeah. Which I've heard – I've read the argument too that that the judge and the kid were the same person oh i have read that i've read that the uh of course that the judge you know sodomizes the kid at the end i've read that the judge eats the kid at the end i saw that one thrown out there interesting hadn't heard Um, that but yeah so they you know they don't describe what happens in there uh the guys are just horrified and then yeah it's cut back back into the uh saloon and the judge is dancing naked over over, over everyone. Right. Yeah. 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 So I I I fully embrace. You have won me twenty minutes ago that the judge embracing the kid is the kid making the final acceptance of the evil and embracing evil. Yeah. I, you've got me hook, line, and sinker on that. I do think the judge is supernatural. I don't. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that he's Satan necessarily. No, I don't. I don't. I, you know, I don't think that he's. You know, he's something supernatural. And I think, you know, in some, we're all familiar with the... Uh, he's a duende. Maybe he's a duende. There you go. Uh, you know, the concept of the, uh, the Mulligan and the Hitchcock movies. <laughs> where there's something in the in the movie, but what, and everybody's focused on it, but what it actually is doesn't matter. Like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Right, right, right. When the, they open it up and it's something... MacGuffin. MacGuffin, sorry, I said a Mulligan, sorry. But MacGuffin, yeah. So that's was a Hitchcock thing. And Tarantino carried that into the modern era. 
I almost think that the judge is sort of that. What he is isn't important. Right. We know he's evil. His actual corporal uh, material doesn't matter. But, man, you, you've turned me. You've got me. See, I've always interpreted it as I feel he is supernatural. And I've always thought that he killed the kid, raped and killed the kid in the outhouse. That it was the kid dead in the outhouse. I've always taken... I thought he was at least raped. I, I thought he was at least raped and left, and people were like, oh, you don't want to see that. I don't know. And, you know, raped and bloodied. I, that's yeah. how I took it. Maybe killed, but... That's how I've always, I've never even thought about what you brought up. How, what's your take, Brad, on, on the ending? What have you thought? All right, I, and this could be completely off, but the judge was intelligent. He's talking about meteorology, science, and everything. You know, for some reason... I always interpreted him as the snake in the Garden of Evil, the knowledge or something of people, and I don't know mm-hmm. if I can defend that at all, except for the fact that he was a smart guy, you know, introducing all this. Right. right. And I don't know. I don't know. His alchemy and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if that means anything. No, I think that, that I think that, I think that's a great parallel because he is in this desert. He is this knowledge. Nobody else has any knowledge, and he's certainly a tempter. Yes, Glanton has. Uh, you know, martial knowledge of how to fight because Glanton's always the one that's leading mm-hmm. any actual attack. Either he's you know cor- you know corroborating it and setting it up. He is the he is the element of war. Right. Whereas the judge is the second to Glanton. He's not in charge. The judge is the philosopher. Yes. You know, while Glanton's the business end of war, the judge is the philosophical side of it and the evil of that. So I don't think that's wrong in any way. That's that's the great thing about this novel. Like I said, four people read it. We all have similar ideas, but we all have distinct things that we've taken away from it. Right. And I'm sure that if we read it again, we'd probably see it in a slightly different way. Well, see, that's the different thing, because I started it again last week in preparation for this. didn't get very far. This makes the fourth time I've read it, I think. Bragger. <laughs> and... And even Montage. then, I mean, within the first chapter, I pick up on things that I either forgot right. or didn't pick up the first time. Yeah, it's just so, such a good book. I've got a quote, and this tells how uh, Corey McCarthy feels about historians, and I actually put this in a book coming out in March, and it... And I actually, my dad said this to me, or my dad sent this to me, like, it's an interpretation he found online. So, in that sleep and in sleeps to follow the judge to visit, who would come other? A great shambling mutant, silent and serene. Whatever his antecedents, he was wholly other than their sum. Nor was there a system by which to divide him back into his origin, for he would not go. Whoever would seek out his history through what unraveling of loins and ledger books must stand at last darkened and dumb at the shore of a void without terminus or origin. And whatever science he might bring to bear upon the dusty primal matter blowing down out of the millennia will discover no trace of an ultimate, ultimate avatistic egg, uh, by which his reckoning, by which the reckoning is commencing. So the way people interpret that is, you know, this isn't a, a person in, in the fact that you, you know, use ledger books, you genealogy, use all this other crap. You can't reassemble a human being. Right. So. My, my book's about a guy that's generally regarded as a pretty evil man, and so I, I, I admit in my conclusion, what I'm giving you here is... Just a piece. Just a piece. You right, know? right. So I, I thought that was really neat. No, that's... It, it discredits, you know, a lot of us. For sure. what I'm, <laughs> I'm doing, so... Well, um, do you guys have anything else? Because I don't. My head hurts at this yeah. point. Yeah, I've got I've got a couple. Was one more thing. Like, yeah, um, as much as you got, bring it. Yeah. Um, you know, if you guys ever... I keep trying to encourage people to write on this stuff, but I, I, I've come across a lot of really cool stories that are 
uh, have origins in this time. You know, um, you guys read Comanche, uh, uh, what's it called? Empire of the Summer Moon. Right. Um, Great book. And it talks about Jack Hayes. Well, there's mm-hmm. a period that even in Jack Hayes' biographies, nobody's written about him. And it's 1848, before he goes to California, he takes a job. And, and I'm, a couple people I've talked about working on this, but... um. Jack Hayes was a ranger, right? He was a ranger. He was okay. the guy that was, you know, figured out the way to deal with the Comanches. Right. And he was fair, and he was, mm-hmm. you know, about not like the guys that came later than him. You right. Know? But yeah. um, he went in 1848 trying to find a, a railroad route between or to track one between El Paso and San Antonio. Went out in the desert, got lost. His guys are attacked by Indians. They just turn desperate, and they just go through this journey. And it's just, uh, one guy gets lost in the desert. He doesn't show up for two years and stuff like Jeez. that. And there's all these journals he's, that people have written and nobody's ever written on that. And then there's a, uh, I was, uh, I got a job looking through Stephen F. Austin's old papers and I can't even remember how I came across his diary, but I got another journal of a guy just going out to West Texas. I don't know what he, what he was doing, but he would, uh, he, they were coming across the Indians come back from Mexico. And they'd have little Mexican kids with them, and and the you know this guy would try and buy them from the Comanches and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But uh, nobody's ever written on his journal, and there's just so many stories to be told out there, and especially in northern Mexico itself. That it's I'm I'm never gonna get around to it, but yeah, uh, you know they're out. And there. And that's a very looked over piece of Texas history, in my opinion. Is after 1836, it's yeah, like, it's almost like <laughs> oh, we well, did it. Yep, yeah, yeah. We're, we're free, you know. And, and so, but, and so that period. I would say from thirty, from the late thirties until the civil, the civil War, Texas history, what's known or what's written, is just kind of empty. Yeah, you know, and the only reason the Civil War part is talked about is because it's the Civil War. Right. You know, sure. We had a very limited. In your, uh, since you have more of an interaction with people talking about this gap, to me, there's this gap of knowledge. In general American history knowledge, after 1812 to the Civil War, I bet most people right now walking around don't even know that the Mexican War even happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's You know, I mean, and that was from a military standpoint, that was a violent war. I mean, I don't know how many deserters and, you know, mutinies they shot down in Mexico, even after, the, you know, it really wasn't much of a, a war as far as battles, but it was the staging ground for all of these future officer corps for both sides yeah. of the Civil War. Yeah. But that's what a lot of people reduce it to. But I know. It, but yeah. It, it was, uh, it's really interesting because we do focus on the battles and, and I love it. Just the descriptions you'll get of the guys writing back home about what they're seeing and, you know, um, you get a lot in this book I brought here, but, um, what the hell was I going to say? Which the battles in the Mexican American War, I mean, our very troops lopsided. Got, very, very lopsided. lopsided. Yeah. Our troops got all the way down to Mexico City, didn't they? We went with, with Taylor. There's some debate. Taylor probably could have taken it pretty soon, but Polk either stopped him for political reasons or supply. He was worried about supply lines or some debate, or he thought he was, it doesn't matter, but there's a lot of debate over Mexico turned to a different strategy towards the end after Americans took Mexico City, and they just started launching a guerrilla war. And as the Americans came in, a lot of Mexicans are like, stuff's shitty anyway. We'll let these guys come in. But the Americans were so shitty that when they came in, they, they did turn them. They mm-hmm. started turning. So this could have turned into like, you know, an Iraq war type of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the guy that was signing the final treaty, some people in the United States were saying, take all of Mexico. Other people worry because there's too many Catholics. But this guy's seeing what's happening around him, and he's like, just let's get the fuck out of here. Right. You know, right. just we don't we made our point. Yeah. Now let's go back yeah. home. Yeah. So it, there's, but I don't know any books that are that are about that. You know. Yeah. Well, and even too think about, I mean, because they weren't sailing ships down to. I mean, I'm sure they did some, but they went down to Veracruz. They, they went to Veracruz. Yeah. Veracruz. Okay. So, 
It got sick as shit there. That's one of the best defenses you got. People went yeah. there. Like half the army got sick. So they didn't march from no, Veracruz, Mexico City. Okay, they went some very. Okay, so they didn't march. They didn't come down through Texas and they went down to, through they went Matamoros. To Texas, they went to Monterey. Then they went to Saltillo. And Zachary Taylor, he's he's kicking ass. And that guy, a lot of people shit on him, but he's a great military leader. And he was uh. Treat the Mexicans uh, pretty fairly, and and but there were some still some bloody battles. Like I think the guy that I wrote the book on, I, I think the Americans ripped this guy's belongings to shit if there, he had any. His daughter lived in uh, Monterey at the time, but um yeah, just some some bloody shit down there. And and then they tell him to stop, don't go any further. So he's in Monterey. I mean, he's still got a long way to go towards Mexico City, but mm-hmm. he was just slicing through. And so he stops there from the end of '46 until the end of the war, essentially. And then you get the rest of the army either. Going out and joining Winfield Scott's, uh, coming down through the boat. So no, they yeah. didn't. They didn't go straight down. And you had the guys going over New Mexico, California, and stuff like okay. that. So it's a couple different well, theaters. Then, and then even then, think you know, because we talked about how harsh the environment was in this book. I mean, war. I mean, Mexican American War. They're dealing with that in northern Mexico. Right. I mean, just the viciousness and, of and that's the what landscape. that book makes really good clear that War of a Thousand Deserts is America, part of the reason they're invading is they're saying, we're here to protect the northern Mexico from Indians. But then these Indians are coming in here, destroying these villages, and the Americans are saying, what do we do? They're weakening the enemy, but we're coming in on a pretense of protecting the people. Right, right. Yeah. So you'd have these American soldiers, Mexican soldiers, Indians that just don't know who to fight. Yeah, and so it's just it's a nightmare, and you have a lot of people in northern Mexico, just Americans come in. You got to be better than the last people. Right. So they gave them food and stuff. And that's kind of Mexican history in general. I mean, that was interesting to me in the the book War of uh, a Thousand Deserts. Is it talked about? You know, as Americans, as America moved west, we never considered the Native Americans Americans. They, you know, they were the savages. They were they were Indians. They were different. They didn't fit into manifest destiny. They were they were different than us. Whereas Mexico, it talks about once Mexico won its independence from Spain, it considered all indigenous people Mexicans. Even Comanches that had wanted nothing to do with this. Even even Comanches and the Apaches, and the Mexican government in Mexico City was like, hey, well, you know, and they tried appeasement for a while and. And that worked for about a decade, what, in like the 20s or something like that, 20s, 30s. It worked under Spain for a long time. but it, yeah. You're right. Yeah. And then Mexico kind of tried it after they realized they couldn't fight them. And then and another interesting thing to point out, which I don't think Texas, which I hadn't had Texas history since seventh grade, but I don't think back then. coast did you a good job? Yeah, I don't think it did a good job <laughs> in, in explaining, explaining it when when Spain first started allowing Americans into East Texas, into Texas, you know, they did it because they were sick and tired of fighting the freaking yeah. Apaches yeah. and Comanches. They wanted a buffer and that, between... That, that carried on even into once it was Mexico. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so Mexico, you know, Stephen F. Austin, or Moses Austin died before Mexico won his independence, right? Boy, that's my book is all about that shit. Okay. Because like this guy's the guy that, he because, trained Santa Ana, and he's also the guy that approved Moses Austin's petition, so... okay. Well, then, when Mexico wins its independence... And they say, go ahead, come on yeah, in. Yeah, they tell Moses, yeah, we'll Stephen, care. Moses' son, yeah, come on in, because they want that buffer as well, right. you know. And then, and then to your point, like you're saying, then when the Mexican-American War starts after Texas has won its independence, and you got Americans, Indians, and Mexicans, and you're just like, well, shit, who do we fight? You know, it's a... Uh, just, I can't imagine that time period. That, I mean, that would make the perfect Western to me, because right there at the border of Texas and, and Mexico in the 1850s because you had slaves escaping down to Mexico. You had whole towns, so 3,000 people 
of escaped slaves. You had a, a Comanche raids going into Mexico. You had the French come in right. in, in the 1860s and, and try to take over Mexico. You had liberal Mexicans fighting conservative Mexicans. You had Americans coming in. I mean, it's filibusters. You, you had people that are Southerners. They're now the state balance is out of whack. They want to steal Mexican territory to make a state in the United States to regain the, the balance in the Senate. Like, it's just insane. And, yeah. Because uh, I've often wondered why we didn't just take, Me- I mean, and you summed it up a while ago, why we didn't take Mexico in the Mexican-American War. There's and, a lot of, to take Mexico, it's Catholic racism, but also, let's get the fuck out of here. And, and, right, and that makes the most sense. I've never heard why we didn't take the Baja Peninsula except for the guys trying to negotiate, and they said, we're not giving it, we're not giving it. And then the guy's like, all right, fuck it, we got to get out of here. That's <laughs> that makes sense ge- geographically. Right, yeah, that yeah. would make, yeah. that would be, uh, yeah. And there weren't a lot of people there at the time, which right. is part of the concern is we don't want the people, we want the land. Right, yeah. Oh, well, we, man, I love history. I'm envious of your, of your job. Man. Yeah. When do you got this book coming out? Yeah. March, uh, March 2017. It's, uh, last Spanish general who, uh, ruled over Texas. He essentially tried to almost form a kingdom up there, like, cause, uh, Napoleon's taking over Spain. Who, do I listen to this fucker? Do I listen to his brother? Whatever. And then you have the government in Mexico City trying to hold shit together, but the king's in exile in France. And this dude just kind of says, well, uh, I'm just gonna run shit. And then you had Americans coming in trying to take over the land. You had a bunch of filibusters then. So he had to fight them, and it's just... Uh, Where was he based out of? Um, Monterey. Monterey? Monterey, okay. yeah. Now, how far is Monterey south of the border? A couple I've hundred miles, there. isn't it? It's, I don't even think it's that long. I, I I went on a trip down there. I think it's only a two-hour drive or something like that. From the border? Yeah, I think so. It's not too well, far. okay. Yeah. You drove it? A uh, bus. Took a bus. Oh, wow. Yeah, pack mule. What time, <laughs> what time period was this? It was like 10 years ago. So it was before the drug violence. Yeah. Do you need help with the title? Because we could probably help you with that. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm 100 serious. I have. I'm having an argument over it. Because uh, you put it to a vote right here tonight. Well, they. <laughs> my my title would be Frontier of Fear, and then the guy's name in Texas and northeastern New Spain or whatever. Okay. It's too long. It's too long. But I like the Frontier of Fear. They like Frontier of Terror, which I think is who's okay they? Too. Uh, the publisher. Publisher. Like more the alliteration publisher. though. Uh, that's the, what I said to them. Right. More alliteration. The problem with it though is there's other titles. Other books use that as a main title. Ah, uh, yeah, you know yeah, what? The Frontier Fear. So the uh, subtitle okay. would be unique, but the main title. Yeah, you need a hook. You need a. a, a but they know. deal with Afghanistan and all this other shit too. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. How about Fearful Frontier? I thought about it. I don't know. Fearsome Frontier. How about Freddy Got Fingered? Frontier. What about, what about Pinky, Front, Frontier. Pinky Indios, the fight for Northern Mexico? All right, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Tired. Man, I cannot tell you how happy it uh, has made us to have you here tonight. Well, I, I, I'm telling you, you you motherfuckers are so smart, and it's not only that you're so smart, but you're so good at shit. Like, I listen to you fuckers, and you're talking about tools and carpentry. Actually, I wanted to get into shit. Like, I uh, um, I, don't, I guess we don't have time now. No, we got time. Shit, no, I, I mean, I don't have time. Yeah, okay. But, but I wanted to you talk about... You got all the time in the world. You know you can come back, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, I want you to, because I'm, my dream is to make a, a mobile home essentially out of a 12 by 6 trailer. And so when the apocalypse comes, I'll have a home on wheels. And so I want you guys to help me do that. Yeah. And I also want to tell you about the Mothman, the girl I dated the, that, uh, from West Virginia, the Mothman up there. Cause Ooh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. Know. yeah. yeah, we're interested. Yeah, we're going to discuss that for well, sure. I, I, play. I, I've been looking at, um, at building, um, campers. So but I've been looking at that for years. Of- 
freaking prepper. Oh, yeah. are you really? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I was just yeah. kidding about the apocalypse. No, I, my dream is I don't want to. I just want to be able to go somewhere. Right. Exactly. Just, just part, but I don't want to have to pay for a camp. Yeah. You want to no. go into the wild. Yes, I'm going to go Easy. into the wild. Have you ever read that book? <laughs> Do what? Have you ever read that book, Into the Wild? Yeah, it's pretty good. It, yeah. It's, it's uh, the kids spoiled and everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, yeah. He, he deserved to die. When that, <laughs> yeah. when that came out in the early 90s, that was like, I want to do that. Except not die. Not yep. the die yeah. part, yeah. But yeah. we would probably be a little bit better prepared than yeah, that. We wanted to be more Jeremiah Johnson. We make that shit. Yeah. But yeah, we can, we want you back if you want to come uh, back. Cause yeah. this has been great. We, we're big fans of yours and Ryan's. We'll make it more location friendly for you next time. Maybe. You don't have to drive. <laughs> you didn't want to come down to Arlington. Maybe meet halfway in between or something. Well, I don't know where the hell it would be. I guess I could get a hotel room. Well, I got, I, I got. And then that could get weird. I live in Louisville. Yeah. I let's mean, get, but it's let's just get it weird. A lot yeah. of other hey, why people not? in my house. Why not? So. But a lot of you. other people? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And we don't okay. need to go into that. Um, uh, that sounds pretty weird. <laughs> it's like a commune. But thank you so much for coming out. No, no yeah, absolutely. I've been so looking forward to this. And you know, this may be the episode that's just for us. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure if anybody else, I'm going to put a, I'm going to put a warning on it and say, this isn't your normal. This is serious shit. There's guys. a couple of dick jokes. There's a lot of pedophilia talk, you know. <laughs> and, and hey, if you love Blood Meridian no, or if you've even heard of it. Right. Give it a shot. But, no, thank you so much. So, if you enjoyed Brad, which I know we did, and if you made it this far, look him up on Below the Belt on the Blowout Podcast Network. You will not be uh, disappointed at all. It's probably our favorite podcast these days. Absolutely. And if you hear ours and you think, man, why did, why can't they just do a good podcast? Go listen to theirs. Then you can hear what it sounds like to have a good one. Right. There you go. Yeah, they, they don't meander. Brad comes in with notes. He's done prep work. He gives... This Ryan, is the most prep work we have ever done. ever done, and I think, that and I don't think it paid off. I'm not, no. and I'm not just saying this because Brad looks like he's he might put me in a chokehold, but I mean, I think both Brad and Ryan are the great thing about them is that they're really knowledgeable, but they're also really humble about it. Yes, like they're not blowhards because no, I don't like care us. how smart somebody is, I don't want to listen to a blowhard. Right, and right. they're funny, and they're funny, and they're relatable, and they're. Fantastic, and you know we might marry him one we day. We might. Are you guys gonna suck my dick now, or what? This is uh, again. <laughs> this is again. I thought I thought we did that to get you. Yeah. Okay. Why do you think we took that break earlier? <laughs> Why do you think no, I was whistling? I, I don't handle compliments very well, so I'll just say thank you <laughs> right, and, and well, insult you. Thank you very time. much for coming. Right. This has been great. So if you want to find us, uh, Brad's on below the belt. Uh, what's the Twitter handle? I mean, I talk to you all below the, the time. belt pod. Below the belt pod on Twitter. If you want to tell him how great he is. Uh, you find us. We've already told you. Listen to our other, you know, shit butt podcast friends, Partial Recall guys, KJ and Clay, or give Glenn and uh, <laughs> Walter, Glenn. not Walter, Glenn and uh, Tommy 2.0 and Point Break Dave on. Just tell me where to turn if you want to hear some dick talk. And uh, I haven't heard of them yet. I'll check it out. It's oh well. No, we'll talk about this on the next episode. But they're still in some of our trough urinal thunder. Ah. Cunts yeah, something on that. Sons on of bitches. Clip. Anyway, email us at Can You Hear Me Pod, Bastards. and uh, we thank you, and we'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. Bye. His feet are light and nimble. He never sleeps. He says that he will never die. He dances in light and in shadow, and he is a great favorite. He never sleeps. The judge. He is dancing, dancing. He says that he will never die.
crickets and the rust beetles scuttled among the nettles of the sage thicket. Vamanos, amigos, he whispered and threw the busted leather flint craw over the loose weave of the saddlecock, and they rode on in the friscalating dusk light. And world-class championship wrestling, I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Saldy. Good night from Dallas, Texas.